Nate, I saw you did pretty well in one tournament, it looked like. I've done pretty well in several tournaments, but like you have to do really well to make money. Other than gambling, what are other hobbies that like I might be good at that could make me money? Because all of my hobbies do the mm. opposite of making me money. <laughs> I had a couple of very inappropriate answers to that. No, I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, understood. Let's let's not go down that path. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Whether President Biden gets two or four years of congressional backing for his first term agenda hinges on the midterms. And listeners to this podcast are probably familiar with the history of incumbent president's first midterms. Only twice since the Great Depression has a president's party gained seats in the House. Those elections are now 16 months away. And today we're going to ask the question, If you want to know what will happen in 2022, what indicators should you be watching in 2021? We'll make a list, look at the trend lines, and get a sense of which factors are likely to be the most important. We're also going to talk about a Gallup survey that reports three-fifths of Americans are, quote, thriving, which to me at least seemed surprising. So that's according to Gallup's Life Evaluation Index, and it's a record number. 59% of Americans are thriving only three and a half percent are suffering. But is that a good use of polling? We're going to dig into that. And here with me to help figure it out. And so much more is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hello, Nate. Hello, everybody. How's Vegas treating you still? And I feel like the last time we talked to you, you were in Vegas. Maybe the time before that, you were also in Vegas. Do you live in Vegas now? No, I was supposed to be in New York today, but thanks to an airline that begins with the letter U, the flight was canceled. I took advantage of it by hanging out with some friends and watching some UFC. No, UFC, bro. And uh, playing in a poker tournament, which I'm still surviving in. So uh, not the end of the world, but I'm a little homesick, to be honest. All right. Fair enough. Also here with us is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Gail. And also here with us is managing editor Micah Cohen. Hey, Micah. Hi, everybody. I'm uh, in New York at my apartment working, just so you know. (laughs) Subtle. So subtle. Well, Micah, you and I have to figure out a way that we can like make some money on the side, finding like hobbies to do around New York one of these days um, to kind of, you know, get back at Nate. I'm not really sure what it would be. If anyone has any thoughts, let us know. I'm not that great at poker. Don't crowdsource that question, Galen. I think we're going to get some (laughs) inappropriate answers. And I will also say for the viewers at home on YouTube, I am wearing a Roma jersey today. If I had a blue jersey, I would be wearing it. I know it's a moment of national unity for Italy, but I figured something is better than nothing. So congratulations, Italy. Forza Zuri. And Argentina, Galen. Let's not be so Eurocentric. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Say your congratulations. Look, I am not a true soccer fan, but I sort of have become a bit of a soccer fan getting into Lionel Messi at Barcelona and Argentina. And Messi finally won a major international trophy with Argentina on Saturday in the Copa America. So congrats. I'm very excited about it. Always the hipster. I do have an Argentina jersey. I mean, that probably makes me a more real Argentina fan than you are an Italy fan, Galen. But let's not. I mean, I mean, have you lived in Argentina? No, no, I have not. We'll move on. We'll move on. (laughs) We'll save the debates for the real political questions. Let's kick things off, of course, with good or bad use of polling. And I've already shared the headline of this survey. A record number of Americans report that they are thriving, according to Gallup's Life Evaluation Index, going back to 2008. So, you know, this doesn't 
date back to the beginning of polling, of course. The number right now is 59.2% of Americans are quote-unquote thriving. The previous high was 57.3% going back to September 2017. During the onset of COVID, the number of Americans who are thriving dropped from about 56% to about 46%, so 10 points there. But the way that they determine whether or not Americans are thriving is not by asking them that question directly. Are you thriving? Are you struggling? Are you suffering? Gallup asks Americans to rate their current and future life situations from zero to 10. Seven and up is considered thriving, five and six are considered struggling, and four and below is suffering. This is known as the Cantrell scale, which has been used in surveys for decades. But I'm curious, is this a good or bad use of polling? Because to be honest, I was a little surprised by the headline there and also the breakdown in terms of thriving, struggling, and suffering. Why were you surprised? Well, first of all, thriving, struggling, and suffering seem like not nearly the only three options for the way that a person lives their life. Like, just fine seems to me like a five or six, but a five or six, according to Gallup, is struggling. I mean, people tend to like, there's this whole ratings inflation thing, right? Where like the average Yelp rating is 4.1 stars and your average Uber rating is 4.8 stars, where if you don't get 10 stars or five stars or the max is, then like it's seen as some huge deficit. But like, why would it be surprising that after a year in which people give up a large majority of things that are make life fulfilling and worth living, that they get those back, whether because they're vaccinated or because they're not vaccinated, they don't give a shit. get vaccinated folks. And they find more appreciation for getting to have more of their life back. I mean, to me, it's the most oh. kind of common sense thing in the world. Oh, no, nee, nee, nee. I should say, I'm not surprised that we've hit a record high, but that record high is 59.2%. And the previous record was 57.3%. And like, if you look at the band between which Americans are thriving, it's always between 45 and 60%, according to this poll. So it's more the range in which Americans always sit that is more surprising to me than that, like, hey, we hit a record high after we got out of lockdown. That does seem obvious to me. But if we go from like, what was it at the COVID bottom? 46% of Americans were thriving during the COVID bottom. I mean, if you take 12% of people and move them from unhappy to happy, that seems like a pretty major improvement in human welfare. So the first thing I'd say is this Cantrell scale, which I'm sure has a lot of uses, but it's an 11 step scale, right? It's zero to 10. They say, please imagine a ladder with steps numbered zero at the bottom to 10 at the top. The top of the ladder represents the best possible life for you. And the bottom of the ladder represents the worst possible life for you. On which step of the ladder would you say you personally feel you stand at this time? So that's the like current measure. On which step do you think you will stand about five years from now? That's the future measure. Gallup combines those two to have these ratings, right? And then more than that, they bucket the, the responses. So seven to 10 is thriving, four to six is struggling. My biggest issue here is this is a really complicated question that I think actually probably elicits a lot of really interesting and nuanced data. But then Gallup is sort of combining it at the other end that I think probably strips a lot of nuance out. Now, in the write-up, they say that that bucketing is done. So in other words, they set the cutoff for thriving at seven based on empirical analysis, based on matching people's responses to these questions with 
their health outcomes and other real world data on how they're actually living. So I take them at their word that like this isn't just some arbitrary cutoff, but it does seem a little like something's not right here where you have this very complicated question that gets all this nuanced data and then you're kind of stripping all that out into these big buckets, which what does it really tell us? I'm not so sure. The other thing is that middle bucket, which they call struggling, is I think more like, hey, I'm doing okay than struggling. So there's also a question of of labels here. So I don't know if that's good use or bad use, but it's really complicated is my problem with it. Yeah, as I understand it, one of the biggest critiques of this scale is there's a pretty strong correlation between how much money people make and then how they respond on this scale, which is probably one reason why, you know, at its lowest point here in 2020, it didn't fall below 46%, was it? Because, you know, not everyone was equally hit by the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of people didn't necessarily lose their jobs. Some people made money on the stock market. That said, though, I think what was interesting about this poll, as well as I can tell from it, it does kind of strip out some of the partisan cues around how the economy is doing or how people think that their life is either going to improve or not improve in the next five years. And as we know, perception matters a lot in politics. And I think that this is an interesting indicator to see how people think their current moment is and what they also think the future holds for them. And right now, it looks as if people generally think things are on the rise. So are you saying, Sarah, that this might be a way of getting at the question of, is the country on the right track or the wrong track, while not priming people in a partisan way to answer that based on whether or not they're a Democrat or Republican? Yeah, I think that because I was really interested. I was like, okay, The other high was 57.3% in September 2017. So I was like, what was happening then? As a refresher, that was when the threat of nuclear war with North Korea was quite high. Remember all those ballistic missile tests? We were also still in the throes of the Mueller investigation. But when I dug into like, okay, well, what was it about the perceptions elsewhere in the economy and in the country that made people feel so good? And it was pretty straightforward. The U.S. economy had added 209,000 jobs in July. It was the 82nd month of consecutive job growth leading into September. Unemployment was at a 16-year low. At that point, Trump added 1.7 million jobs in his first six months in office. And I think in terms of what you also see in this survey around the Great Recession and numbers were really low, When Obama took office, things started to tick back up. The economy hadn't fully recovered. It seems to me as if it tracks pretty closely with economic sentiment was kind of my biggest takeaway from this. Sarah's convinced me. (laughs) And most people give much more of a shit about their personal situation than politics and maybe are more sane than people who do care about politics. People have like a fair amount of money stored up from like not spending a ton in the pandemic and also having pretty generous stimulus unemployment benefits and so forth. I'm sure that helps a fair bit. But yeah, I mean, if you do look at the scale, you don't necessarily see major political developments reflected. And also being out here in Vegas for two weeks now, which is a place which is notoriously apathetic about politics, but in some ways I think it's kind of probably closer to how the average American lives than maybe people in the Northeast corridor in terms of higher awareness of politics. And here, you know, if if people are having a good time in their jobs and their personal lives and, and they have their hobbies and interests and their friendships and family, then 
that's the stuff that drives life satisfaction more, I think. To be fair, I'm sure that there are plenty of people who live in the Northeast who just aren't covering politics or involved in politics who their personal life satisfaction derives their overall view of life and so on more. But I'm curious here then, do you think that this is a better question to ask people than the right track, wrong track question that we often use in politics? I do. I mean, they're different questions, right? I mean, Mike is right that this is kind of very complicated, but in some ways it's so complicated that you don't want to unwrap it. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Unwrap that for us. Meaning if you ask someone, are you happy or not? I don't think any expert would be better than someone themselves <laughs> at saying whether they're really happy or not. I want to be like, well, you think you're happy, but it's only because of X and Y reasons, and deep down you're probably miserable, or vice versa. If someone tells you they're happy, then they're probably happy. If someone is asked a question about right track, wrong track, that's the opposite. That's actually like a very political answer. And there you see very dramatic shifts based on who the president is, for example. The GOP will say when Biden becomes president, oh, all of a sudden we're on the wrong track, Democrats do the opposite. Whereas Life satisfaction is kind of more honest in some ways and closer to the Do you the think it is indicative of a political outcome, even if it strips the partisanship out? Well, that's what I'm saying, right? The more you frame things in terms of how are things actually going for you personally, and again, you this for the economy too. If you ask people, how is the U.S. economy doing, which more than right track, wrong track kind of has like an objectively correct answer. How is the U.S. economy doing? That shifts a ton based on who the president is. How is your financial situation? That does not shift as much. How do you expect your situation to do in the future shifts to some degree. But asking people for like their revealed preferences or for their personal views sometimes avoids getting these very polarized and partisan responses that we get on many other survey questions. I think that's right. And I think what I was complaining about before, which is like the complicated nature of the question. Well, the benefit of of that, imagine your life circumstances, blah, 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 is that it does sort of take people away from the politics of it, right? It anchors them in their personal life. And in that sense, maybe it is a more useful measure of where people are than right track, wrong track. I guess maybe my real issue then is just with the presentation of it. Like I was really curious to see the results not grouped, not bucketed together you know, how many people gave themselves a one over time or a two over time, and also to see the results segmented out by present versus future and how those were or were not related over time. Again, not grouped together. They showed them grouped together. So maybe I'm like nitpicking about presentation more than the question itself. And one thing I would say about the right track, wrong track question is Morning Consult has been tracking that daily since 2016. And the biggest takeaway I had from that was overall, Americans are more likely to say the country's on the wrong track, whereas this poll at least captures some fluctuation in terms of how they're thinking about their daily lives. And as Nate was saying, too, you know, a lot of the wrong track, right track fluctuation does depend on who's in office as well. Also, pessimism is fashionable now. (laughs) You get more retweets on Twitter if you are like the world is ending, which maybe it is. It's 115 degrees today in Nevada or whatever, right? But you get more retweets for this very cynical, dire view. But like that reflects a public skin that I think does not necessarily reflect people's personal lives as much. And especially kind of in COVID where in contrast to normal times where people, frankly, on Instagram and other places kind of exaggerate how great their life is. In COVID, it's almost more like, oh, you're having your friends over for this dinner party, but it's 
discreet because you don't want to seem like you're celebrating because the pandemic's still not over. And so that even, I think, more creates a difference between people's public and private selves. So I go to as like kind of polls get out at people's private selves. And of course, it's difficult because people want to reveal as much about themselves. But like, we have plenty of predictable manifestations of people's public selves in terms of political behavior, but the private self is harder to get at. And so it's interesting, right? Like if people are privately satisfied with their lives, then what electoral implications does that have? I don't know. I haven't looked at that. I think it might <laughs> lower turnout maybe. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, I think that's an instance where I was going to ask, even if this has the partisanship stripped out of it, does it have political implications? It sounds like that's something that we could explore further. But I want to dig into a little bit more of the methodology here for a second, which you mentioned, if someone says they're happy, take them at their word and accept that they're happy. Also, that different people maybe on and off Twitter and different parts of the country may have different ways of perceiving what thriving or struggling may be. So how good are people at self-evaluating and how reliable is polling that uses that? Because there are differences in culture. I think they also do this kind of polling across different countries, but we have different cultures in different regions of the country at actually evaluating themselves. Like I may think, for example, like I said, that a five or a six is, is fine. Like if you say that your life is a six, that's pretty good. But according to Gallup, it's struggling. So how much is relativity at play here? What you're saying, Galen, is we needed a languishing category, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where's purgatory in this? I have an issue with the struggling label, but I think the problem you're identifying, Galen, is solved as long as they're consistent with the questions they're asking. Because yes, there's almost no doubt that people responding to this survey, you know, my seven is another person's five, but they're taking big enough samples. And as long as they're consistent over time, I would think that kind of thing would come out in the wash. I mean, the, the question is, do people's perceptions of rating scales change over time? Or across Again, cultures. when I check out of this hotel, I'll get a survey that says, how is the customer service on a zero to 10 scale? And if I say a nine, I'll get a prompt that says, what was wrong? I would say nine, wow, that's pretty f good. Nine <laughs> out of 10, that's really good. Why are you asking what was wrong? But like, if you do have some shift, because people are so used now to these online rating scales, and now that tends to be shifted toward the higher end of the spectrum, that might worry me actually a bit, measuring this over the long term. Nate, how would you say I'm doing as, as managing editor as, on a scale from zero to 10? Nine? Nine? Yeah. What's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I do think to Galen's point though, it's interesting that the three categories are thriving, struggling, suffering. There really isn't like a meh category, you know, like everything's fine, but it's not the pits. And I do think that kind of then maybe the framing they have around five, six, I'd be curious to understand like what it is based on the other factors they're looking at that suggests that this is struggling versus status quo. Things aren't bad. Things aren't great. So what they say is struggling, well-being that is moderate or inconsistent. These respondents have moderate views of their present life situation or moderate or negative views of their future. They are either struggling in the present or expect to struggle in the future. They report more daily stress and worry about money than the thriving respondents and more than double the amount of sick days. They are more likely to smoke and are less likely to eat healthy. I agree with you that I think there's a bucket missing here that's 
yeah, you, the rest of your life isn't stress-free. You worry a little bit about money. You worry about the future. You have to take sick days. You have fast food once in a while. But like, you're doing okay. I like Sarah's category. Meh, but I'm doing okay. Right. I think this is why the headline caught my eye. Because when you're either thriving, struggling, or suffering, then yeah, sure, you get 60% of Americans are thriving. But I don't, what does that even mean at that point? I don't know. I mean, the most of the people I know are both thriving and struggling. You know? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's doing just fine? Where are those people? <laughs> no, but thriving and struggling is doing just fine. I think that's what's missing here. Okay, so to wrap this up here, is this a good or bad use of polling? Good. Good enough. Good enough. Good enough. Is it thriving? Yeah. Is it a thriving use of polling? Is it a struggling use no, of polling? No, it's struggling. Or is it a suffering use of polling? It's struggling for sure. I think it's struggling because I think using the scale is great and asking people how their lives are going and stripping out the partisanship and all the things we've mentioned are fantastic. But the three categories don't make sense to me. The three labels don't make sense to you. Yeah. It actually looks like Gallup did some work to make sure that they were bucketing these in a empirically driven way. Right, that there are statistical differences between the groups of people in each bucket. Exactly. Now, I haven't seen like the raw data or anything, but I think what we're really taking issue with is the labeling of those buckets and the presentation. But those are kind of nitpicky. A little nitpicky. It seems like Nate is trying to suggest that in part the lesson here is that the online environment, Twitterati, pundits, etc., are like overly cynical about how Americans are faring and that this should open our eyes to the fact that a lot of Americans are doing well and enjoying life. Is that a good takeaway from this poll or no? Again, having been in Vegas for, God, 16 nights now, a lot of Americans are enjoying their life. I will say that much. Also, a little bit of a COVID spike here, but a lot of Americans are uh, thriving in terms of feeling like they're getting back to things that they were missing during the peak of COVID cases in the U.S. I don't think we needed this poll to know that nor to know that Twitter and the online space is a warped small section of the country. Now, it's interesting how like questions then that are asking about the state of politics in our country generally show a large amount of pessimism, whereas a poll like this about your personal experience captures optimism, right? And I don't know to what extent, though, you should read those two types of polls as speaking to each other, because I do think this poll doesn't really show political events really factoring into how people answered the question. But obviously that still shapes people's perceptions of the country and politics. Or the other way, right? Even though people said they were doing pretty good or a majority did in 2017, 2018, they still chucked a bunch of Republicans out of office. All right. Well, the lesson for me is Americans are personal optimists and global pessimists. They're private optimists and performative pessimists. Ooh, performative pessimists. Takeier than mine. I think that's too pessimistic. <laughs> so cynical. <laughs> I think they're private optimists. I think they're realists in terms of like being pessimistic about our political space. Is anyone here going to argue that our political space is actually doing well? No. So they're right. All right. Well, I have been convinced that this is a good use of polling simply because it got our creative juices flowing. And I think this was a good conversation. So thank you all for contributing. Let's move on, though, and talk about the midterms. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. 
Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As I mentioned at the top, the midterms will likely determine whether Biden has two or four years to try to enact his first-term agenda. Both parties feel as though there's a lot at stake, and as campaigns kick into gear at the end of the summer, things are going to get heated. Right now, though, before those campaigns get going, we want to take a step back and ask, if you want to know what will happen in 2022, what should you be watching in 2021? And so for this, I'm going to open up the floor and let you all suggest some things that you're watching, and then we can get into the details of those different indicators and try to say which is more or less important. But for now, who wants to kick us off and talk about the indicators that they're watching in 2021? The economy. That's a good um, segue <laughs> out of our last segment, but tell us more. It's always been one of the most determinative factors in terms of election outcomes. What metric you use to look at the economy is a whole nother complicated, boring conversation. But is the nation adding jobs? Are wages going up? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is one of the more important things to watch. Everyone agree? Yeah. It's why I liked the poll we talked about earlier. It is important. Nate, how important? Because we've talked about how partisanship makes people's perceptions of the economy a bit skewed. So has the economy become less important over time? Empirically, the relationship between the economy and midterm performance is tenuous. Ooh. First of all, it's also much more vague for presidential elections than some badly researched papers would suggest. But for the midterms, it's quite murky. Well, because, yeah, look at 2018. I guess the economy was roaring and Republicans didn't do well. Yeah. I mean, if you look at a graph take whichever economic index you want and correlate it with how the president's party did at the midterms, there's like not really much of a correlation. We're also at the point where it's a little bit too soon to know, it's a lot too soon to know what the economy will look like in in November 2022, or even if voters evaluate the economy for that whole year. Like there are some threats from inflation and who knows what else, right? No one would have thought in November 2019 that covid would be the major issue of 2020. So it's just too soon to know very much. 
Biden's approval rating. That's what I was going to say, Mike. A strong endorse on that being important. Okay. So first, Nate, are you going to throw cold water on that one too? Second, where does his approval rating need to be in order for Democrats to hold the House and Senate? His approval rating is at 51.6%. His disapproval rating is at 42.3%. It's ticked down a bit. It's ticked down about three points since he entered office. The question is, is there some hard and fast threshold of whereby we have to be for Democrats to hold Congress? Is that it's actually a very complicated question dictated by a lot of things. So one thing I would watch in 2021 are these redistricting fights. Because those are things where like you actually are putting points up on the scoreboard more or less, right? Where if you take a state that's a 8-3 GOP gerrymander versus a 7-4 versus a 9-2, that translates in a pretty linear way to the race of the House next year. But like it also means that until we know how all that resolves itself, then it's hard to take a one-for-one translation of Biden's approval rating to how many seats Democrats win or fail to win. So And it won't, obviously, because redistricting is an important indicator to watch in 2021 and 2022. But if the map were to stay exactly as it is today for the 2022 elections, where do you think his approval would have to be in order for Democrats to hold the House and Senate? I'm not going to say that because it's the kind of thing where like, I spend months trying to come up with a good answer to that. So I'm not going to give you a bad answer now. Mm -hmm. I think Nate's right. There's not an exact number and it's foolhardy to act as if there is. But there was one interesting piece from analysis from Gallup in the lead up to the 2018 midterms. They looked at presidential approval rating going into the midterm elections since 1972. And on average, it's been 52%. So that's a baseline. Biden needs to roughly be above that. And then when we look at past elections where presidents, parties haven't lost that many seats, you know, I'm thinking here Clinton in 1998, well, he was at 66%, or George Herbert Walker Bush, the Republicans still lost seats, but it wasn't really like a shellacking, he was at 58%. So, I mean, I think signs point to Biden wants to be above 50%. We don't know the exact number, but the president's approval rating is an important thing to watch. And, you know, if he can stay above 40%, that's a feat in comparison to both Trump and Obama looking at their midterm elections and where they were. Okay, so, so far we have the economy, presidential approval, and redistricting. What other indicators are we looking at to understand the midterms? Voting laws, the measures states are passing to make it harder to vote, and in some cases to make it easier to vote. Research on the net effect of those laws is complicated and mixed, but I definitely think that's one of the more important, meaningful things we can watch this year in terms of how next year will play out. And not only who can vote, but then also the measures that have been pushed by Republican legislatures to kind of make it easier for partisan actors to have a say and to, in some cases, overturn election results. Now, to be clear, that's a worst case scenario, but there are laws now on the books, Georgia, Iowa, that makes it easier than before. There are two sides here, because on one hand, these more restrictive voting laws are being passed, and we can talk about the extent to which they could potentially decrease turnout. And I'm curious to hear what you all think. There's another piece of this, which is that Democrats are heavily campaigning on the idea that Republicans don't want their base to vote and maybe in turn increasing energy and enthusiasm for voting. So I think the cumulative effect of this may be somewhat complicated, but do people have a sense of perhaps which is more potent and to what extent both factor into these midterms? If you want to live or die 
on the question of how much do voting laws affect electoral outcomes, I don't think that's the hill you want to die on in terms of either the importance of voting laws or the electoral outcomes. Relative to some other data-driven crowd, I actually think there are bigger effects than the average data nerd might think, but I think they're much smaller than the average democratic activist might think in terms of purely electoral implications. And I think people should look at that more in terms of the normative implications in terms of, in the U.S., we actually have a very ambiguous norm about who gets to vote and who really has the right to vote. So that's really a fight about redefining norms that probably in the long run might help some parties more than others. But if you kind of squish that into like an electoral mode, the evidence is more ambiguous, which is not to say totally zero, right? Also the fact that obviously some of these laws are intended to disenfranchise black people and people of color. They may also wind up disenfranchising poor white people who tend to vote Republican these days. So as a coalition shift, and one party is more organized and doing more education for its voters. I mean, I think like motivation to vote is a different question. In some midterms, like 2010, you had a very big enthusiasm gap where like if you asked all voters who are you going to vote for on the generic ballot, it was like fairly close. However, the GOP dominated in a lowish turnout election and people actually did turn out to vote. Similarly in 2014. 2018 turnout was very high on both sides. So like will Democrats be able to avoid the turnout slump that the president's party sometimes gets in part because to bring back the first segment, voters are complacent. My guess is that Democrats will not be complacent because they're worried about what's going on in states like Georgia. They're worried about President Trump, part two. They're worried about January 6th. And so I don't think Democrats will have trouble motivating their base in the way that a party might typically at the midterms. So two thoughts. One, I think Nate is right to break the access to voting conversation down into like a normative conversation and what's right, and then an electoral conversation. Because Galen, to your question, there are backlash effects over these laws, where as one party tries to make it harder for Black Americans or students or just members of the other party to vote, it does, in some cases, tend to have a rallying effect on those very groups. Now, that doesn't make it right. And in fact, if it increases, to use that phrase, the cost of voting, right, if it makes it harder to vote, it can still have an effect because a Democratic activist group might spend a lot of money to counteract a law or a rule that makes it harder for its voters to vote. Well, they might be successful, but that might have gone elsewhere, right? And might have gone to turning out people who don't normally vote. So I think Nate's right that it's like, the normative conversation around voting access and the electoral conversation overlap, but they are two different conversations. But that last point Nate made, I think is totally right, which is watching for signs of political engagement. Like one of the reasons Republicans have tended to have an advantage in midterm elections is because their voters on net tend to be groups that more reliably turn out. Older, more college educated. Exactly. Right. But Education is the perfect one. As we've seen sort of a bit of a realignment where college-educated voters are moving towards Democrats, maybe we'll see some of that Republican turnout advantage ebb away a little bit. Probably not much. Like, we're not talking about huge shifts here. Maybe a little bit. But signs of political engagement. Who's winning special elections? Are there protests? Are there... Cable news ratings. What do you think? Do cable news ratings matter? No. 
but watch ABC News. That's not cable, but I don't know. Are there other good signs of political engagement? Special elections, protests? Reading 538.com, clicking in all the ads, buying merchandise. Volunteering. Volunteering, donating. I think just backlash. Like, are we going to see a backlash a la the hashtag resistance or Tea Party, right? And so far we haven't. And so watching to see whether that happens is going to be an important indicator of 2022. What about the legislative agenda and or accomplishments? Does that matter? Well, political science has normally shown that voters like a party until they pass legislation. There's often a pushback against really sweeping legislation. That said, though, the COVID stimulus bill that Biden pushed through in his first months of office was widely popular among both Democratic voters and Republican voters. There was a Pew poll at the time that captured that low-income Republicans in particular were really supportive of the bill. So it's unclear to me, I think, at this point, we kind of seem to be stuck in a morass of like what actually is going to move through in terms of infrastructure. Will the Democrats be able to do anything on voting rights? I don't know, though, to the extent which then that will impact voters in terms of turnout. Right now, Biden and Democrats haven't really passed that much. Yeah, this is a question that I had coming into this, which is we do have that political science that shows that when parties get into power and pass their priorities, those priorities can become unpopular and spark backlash that then gets them out of power. This is the story of American politics. At the same time, we often hear from activists who say, if you don't pass the things you ran on, we're not going to show up at the midterms. So are those activists correct? Like, do you see disengagement from the base if the newly elected president isn't actually passing their base's priorities? Well, I don't know if the activist priorities and the base's priorities are correlated. That's true. That's an important distinction. Activists and the base are not the same. We can debate all day about HR1 and democracy reform. I think the average Democratic voter cares more about the stability of their paycheck and what their school system is doing in COVID and stuff like that than about HR1. And I don't really think activist groups are trying to, they of course have incentives to like make every fight seem like it's the fight of the century. Sometimes things are the fight of the century, but the incentives of activist groups, especially the Twitter era, is to turn the volume on everything up to 11 and that can have a drowning out effect where you blow out the top of the range of the speakers and it's kind of hard to tell like what really is important and what isn't. So yeah, I would not give weight to like an activist saying HR1 didn't pass, therefore Democrats are toast. I would instead look at surveys when you ask people what are the most important issues when people say the economy, they say COVID, an increasing number, I assume, say crime, although not as much actually as the political class might say. But those are things that are more likely to actually motivate voters. That brings us into a different category of indicator for the midterms. We talked about legislative agenda. There's also salient issues. Looking back, maybe through history, how much does that matter? Like there's certain terrain that Republicans want to fight the midterms on, which may be critical race theory, perhaps inflation, if there is significant inflation, different cultural issues, things like that. Democrats probably want the terrain to be strength of the economy, potentially infrastructure, getting the parties to work together, et cetera, which seems like it's going to be closer to the reality. 
This is kind of adjacent to your question, Galen. But one thing I'm really interested in is the cases that the Supreme Court has chosen so far to take up in 2022. In particular, I'm thinking about the case looking in Mississippi and a ban there that undermines the constitutional right to an abortion. And we saw in 2018, for instance, the appointment process around getting Kavanaugh on the court actually helped Republicans, particularly in races for the Senate leading up to those elections. I'm curious, we know that the Supreme Court has traditionally been a factor that motivates Republicans more, but Democrats have also expressed here in 2020, moving into 2022 as well, more concern and interest around the Supreme Court. So is that something that energizes or angers voters moving into the 2022 midterms? I agree. I tend to think these kinds of issues, where is the national conversation? They can have an effect. Maybe, as Sarah was saying, the fight over Kavanaugh helped mobilize Republicans in red states. I think it helped mobilize Democrats in blue states, maybe too, or blue districts. One reason I think that maybe Democrats won't suffer as big a midterm penalty as historically can be the case is just that they actually didn't do that well in the last election. Like oftentimes presidents come into office winning a bunch of House seats, winning a bunch of Senate seats. And that wasn't really the case in 2020. So in the House, for example, Democrats aren't really that overextended into red districts. I actually think Republicans hold more districts that voted for Biden and Democrats hold districts that voted for Trump. And so just given how polarized the country is, I think we could see less of a midterm penalty if there is one, just because Democrats' majority in the House is already sort of a bit small. Now, Republicans only need a few seats to win the House, so they could still win the House, but just in terms of overall seat movement. I'm going to emphasize that point, because it's like a technical thing that actually is very important from like an analytical standpoint that almost no one pays attention to. Democrats did not actually have a super good performance in races for Congress in 2020. They won the popular vote for Congress by like two and a half points or something. And so if they were to win the popular vote for Congress by like five points, which is where the generic ballot has it now, if you average out the polls, they'd actually do better than in 2020. Now, I wouldn't look too much at that yet. And the fact is that like there are all quite some questions about like how accurate are polls. We can deal with that at some point. But it's not that high a bar to set. And for the Senate, most seats are contested after six years, unless there's a special election. So 2022, six years ago, is 2016. Also not a great year for Democrats. Not a terrible one, but like not a particularly good one, kind of an average year. And so that's why this year versus 2024, let's say 2024, Biden is super popular. We have landed men on Mars and cured cancer and have some universal COVID vaccine or something, and GDP has grown by 57%. You still have the fact that Democrats are coming off a 2018 election in which they did quite well. And so those kind of effects are pretty important. Yeah, that's important. The structural issues here, like we mentioned, redistricting and how many seats Republicans or Democrats basically gain through redrawing districts, but also where their actual margins stand today. One question I have and I'm curious if you guys think that this matters at all anymore, is we're going to watch the primaries play out over the fall and spring. And the parties are going to choose which candidates they want to run in these in these upcoming midterms. How much does candidate quality matter? Like getting a good candidate with experience who fits the district 
how much are we going to be able to tell through the fall and spring how the parties are faring? I think it matters. It's not the thing, but I think the fact that Trump is going to be a force in the Republican primaries and probably put his thumb on the scale in a way that leads to overall a weaker stable of GOP candidates than would otherwise arise, that could cost... That could cost Republicans. So I want to just challenge that assertion. Do you think that Trump getting involved in primaries is going to leave Republicans with weaker general election candidates? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. Again, let's also kind of get back to basics here. Historically, there's a very robust pattern that the president's party loses ground in the midterms. But there are also predicates to that pattern, such as the fact that when a party loses the presidency, they tend to shift away from the messaging of the now failed presidential candidate because it was kind of proven to be stale or unpopular or unsuccessful. If the GOP is doubling down on a losing message, granted a message that didn't lose by that much, but still a losing message, John Kerry didn't lose by that much. Democrats did not double down on John Kerry or Hillary Clinton after she lost narrowly in 2016. So that kind of arguably violates one of the premises on which this historical midterm penalty is built. The GOP is in a quite literal way rejecting the notion that Trump even lost. That might be actually, I think, a decent reason to throw some degree of precedent out the window. So there will be districts, for example, where it would help Republicans to nominate, you know, some chamber of commerce Republican who doesn't say outlandish things and blah, 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 blah. And there will be a more Trump-aligned candidate in that district who could win with the Trump endorsement, which we've seen can make a difference. So let's say that costs Republicans two seats, three seats, you know, some small amount of seats. I think given everything we know, the small majority Democrats have now, the the few number of seats that elect someone against their default partisan lean, whoever has a majority in the House and the Senate for that matter in 2022 or 2023, I should say, it's going to be a small majority. And if Trump costs Republicans a handful of seats, that that could make a big difference. All right. So I want to wrap up here with two final questions. First is to go over all of the different factors that we mentioned and see which you think people should be paying the most attention to or put the most weight on. So one is historical precedent. Of course, that the newly elected president's party usually loses at the midterms. So historical president, presidential approval, generic ballot polls, special elections, candidate quality, voting laws, the economy. We didn't mention COVID, but maybe COVID is in here somewhere. Or I guess salient issues. That's included in salient issues. Which terrain, the national conversation that's going on, the legislative agenda and redistricting. What should people really be paying attention to the most here? All the indicators that we've talked about in terms of horse race indicators are going to be substantially more accurate a year from now than they are today. So I can look at the weather forecast for what is the weather 13 days out when I might plan a picnic with my friends and I want to make it sunny outside. But I'm going to want to look at the weather forecast five days out or three days out, and then it'll ultimately dictate my plans. When do these indicators become more predictive? Like, when would you say to look at them? There's no bright line, but like, I'll put it like this. We usually turn our midterms model on in like the late summer. 
And that's kind of when I think specific indicators begin to take precedence over kind of the global macro indicators. So it's at least a year from now. However, things where you're actually playing for keeps right now, we can debate how much voting laws affect electoral effects. Again, I'm on the side that says they're not necessarily that large, although larger than maybe some other data people think. But you're playing for keeps right now in terms of voting laws in different states. You're playing for keeps right now in terms of redistricting. So wherever we end up in November 2022, if Democrats gain or lose three seats based on how aggressive a plan they adopt in New York, which is a state where they can actually gerrymander the GOP out of many of their current seats, whichever number you're at, having a plus three or a minus three for Democrats will have a decently large impact on their chance of holding the House. We don't know what the number is, but we know the plus or minus three is what's going to be contested sooner rather than later. And to build on Nate's point, too, I don't think we should look at any one indicator that like matters the most. It's more so like, is there a trend in which all of the various ones are pointing in the same direction, whether that's special elections, the generic ballot, how does redistricting factor into that? You know, and I think a good takeaway from that is in the lead up to 2018, all the indicators pointed towards a really robust national environment for Democrats, whereas in 2020, it was a lot more mixed signals. And so as we move in to 2022, it's more so where are all the different signs lining up or not? Totally agree with both Sarah and Nate, the voting laws, redistricting, and then what Sarah just said, I would add special elections. I don't have like empirical proof for this. I just like looking at special elections in the aggregate as, as kind of a rough indicator of where the country is. And then I would also just add COVID. And again, that's not based on like some empirical model, but how the country is doing with COVID feels like it'll have some bearing on how the country is doing with COVID next year, but you'll have some bearing on how the country votes. And finally... I know that these don't become predictive for a while still, but do you think these indicators are pointing in a certain direction today? No. <laughs> yeah, not at this point. Various indicators are pointing to marginal advantages for one party or the other, but they're not all pointing the same way. And so I don't think there's anything to read yet. But stay tuned to 538.com and we'll tell you exactly when they are. That's right. Absolutely. So we will leave things there. And as I frequently say, we will continue to track these things. So thank you, Micah, Sarah, and Nate. Nate, can you put $50 on black for me? I will happily put $50 on black, yes. Thank you. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegary Curtis is on audio editing. Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.